If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Malachi to chapter 2. Malachi is the last of what we call in the Bible the minor prophets. They're not minor because they're unimportant. They're minor because they're short. The book of Malachi in my Bible is just about four and a half pages. That's all. So as we get into chapter 2, the Lord is rebuking the priesthood in particular in Israel. Because the priests are not only responsible for doing the worship services in the temple and the sacrifices and the offerings, but they're also responsible for teaching the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God that we call the Torah, or in our English Bibles, the law. And they haven't been doing that. Now remember, Malachi takes place after the return from the Babylonian captivity, after the temple has been rebuilt, after Jerusalem's reestablished and the people are back in the land. Their hearts begin to wander from God and get cold. And the people begin to honor them with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. So in chapter 2, it begins, And now, O priest, this commandment is for you. So God's talking specifically to the priests. And verse 3 said, Behold, I will rebuke your seed. Talking about the fact that their crops will not grow. Which is a clear sign of God's displeasure. And spread refuse on your faces. That is the remnants of the invalid sacrifices that they're offering on behalf of people. The refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Then we come to where we start today, verse 4. Then, when you see these judgments fall, then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. God does not want to invalidate the covenant with Levi. God wants the Levites, the priests, to repent. And come back and do their part of the covenant. That's what God wants. So when you see these judgments take place. Then you'll know that I meant what I said. Verse 5 says my covenant was with him. But who is him? With Levi. That's correct. My covenant was with him. One of life and peace. That's the covenant in verse 4. That God wants to continue. The covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. What does fear me mean? To obey me. So he feared me. And was reverent before my name. That covenant of peace. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25 is back during the time of Balaam. When Balaam taught Balak how to get God to curse the children of Israel. How did he do that? He brought in pagan idolatry with its sexual immorality. So that the children of Israel would turn away from God. Then God would judge them. So go to Numbers chapter 25. To verses 10 to 13. To the actions of Phineas. From chapter 25 verse 1 through verse 9. It's where we have the children of Israel beginning to go astray. With the 
pagan worship and the sexual immorality and God let loose a plague among them and Aaron's son Phineas is the one who stepped up. And let's read about it in verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. Notice those are the same words as in Malachi chapter 2, my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood. What does everlasting mean? Forever without end. That's why in Malachi 2, God doesn't say, I'm going to end it. He says, I want you to repent and come back to it, to embrace it. So verse 13, it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. That's what God wants the descendants of Phineas and of Aaron to remember. So let us go back to Malachi chapter 2 and continue in verse 5. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. That word reverent is an interesting translation. The word is chatat, Hebrew word 2865. And it means broken or humble. And it refers to the fact that Phineas humbled himself before the Lord, refusing to turn to the pagan idols, refusing to engage in the sexual immorality, but rather standing up and defending the word of God, even to the point that he actually slew one of his brethren and the immoral woman with which he was cohorting. So verse 6. The law of truth was in his mouth. Literally, it says in Hebrew, the Torah of truth. Why would God refer to the Torah as the Torah of truth? Because that's what Torah is. Psalm 119, verse 142. Let's turn and look at it. We refer back to that verse a lot, but I want you to put your eyes on it. Psalm 119, verse 142. Because it tells us more than just that the Torah is truth. Psalm 119, verse 142. It says, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And your law, your Torah, is truth. Righteousness is the opposite of what? Lawlessness. If God's righteousness is an everlasting righteousness... When will Torah ever cease to be truth? It never will. Turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, and put your eyes on the words in red, spoken by our Messiah Yeshua. Matthew 4, 4. But he, that is Messiah Yeshua, answered, he answers Satan, and said, it is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So has the Torah ceased to be the word of God as we cross from the Old Testament to the New Testament across that one page we should rip out of our Bibles? Yes, that is of course not. So go back to Malachi chapter 2 verse 6 and let's make sure we finish the verse. It says the law of truth was in his mouth. Let's also turn back to Deuteronomy 33 verse 10. Deuteronomy 33, verse 10. They, who do you think they refers to? The descendants of Levi, the priests and Levites serving God. They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law, your Torah. So right here, God charges the descendants of Levi with the responsibility of teaching the law to all of Israel. Let's go back now to Malachi chapter 2, verse 6. How did the law of truth get into Levi's mouth? Because God put it there. And injustice was not found on his lips. The word injustice means unrighteousness. So in much of Israel, what was it, about 20,000 went astray? Levi's descendants said, nope, not us. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. If he turned many away from iniquity, what is iniquity? Iniquity is lawlessness. So if he turned many away from iniquity, what did he turn them to? To righteousness. Does that make you think of Daniel 12? Let's turn back to Daniel chapter 12. God has a special blessing for those who turn many to righteousness. Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 is about the tribulation period, specifically the middle of the tribulation period. Verse 2 is about the resurrections. The first resurrection is to life. The second resurrection is to the great white throne judgment and eternal death. But verse 3 is the verse that specifically applies here. It says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. Talking about the stars in the heavens. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So God promises a special blessing that you'll shine like the stars in the heavens above if you turn many to righteousness, which means away from lawlessness. And God said Levi and his grandsons did that initially. But in the days that Malachi writes, they have lost that fervor. They have lost that mission. They've turned away. Their hearts have gotten cold. Is there any New Testament equivalent to Daniel 3 that those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever? 
That's in Matthew chapter 5. So let's turn up to Matthew chapter 5. Verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. I have an ulterior motive for starting here. You probably guess what it is pretty quickly. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That word fulfill in English can have many meanings. And the translators, I'm sure, chose the word fulfill here to cause us to think something different than the text conveys. This word fulfill is plurosai, which is a conjugate of the root word plurao, which is used in Romans 15, 19. So let's turn over to Romans 15, 19 while keeping a finger in Matthew 5. Romans 15, 19 conveys the real meaning of this word. Let me give you a chance to find it because I want you to make a note of this in your notes. Verse 19 of Romans 15 says, In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached that is the same word. That's what the word to fulfill means in Matthew 5.17. Messiah came to fully preach the law and the prophets, that we would understand them correctly. Because the scribes and Pharisees were teaching them wrong. And Messiah said, I came to teach them correctly. Okay, back to Matthew 5, to verse 18. For assuredly, if Messiah says assuredly, which is the Hebrew word amen, what does he mean? Does he mean I'm about to lie to you? To lead you astray, to mislead you. No. Means this is absolutely true. I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. Have heaven and earth passed away yet? Anybody know? If you're curious, stand up and jump up and down, and you'll find it's still here. Will heaven and earth pass away? Yep, at the end of Revelation chapter 20. That's at the end of the millennial kingdom that's far in the future from us. So until heaven and earth pass away, the smallest letter, which is the Hebrew letter Yod, looks like a little apostrophe in our English language, or one tittle, which is a piece of a letter that would cause you to misread one letter over another, like a dalit and a resh, the difference is just a little bit of a mark. So not the smallest letter or the smallest mark will by any means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. This is not the same word fulfilled as in verse 17. This one is genitai. And it means not until all prophecy has come to pass. Which is at the end of the millennial kingdom when we come to the new heavens and the new earth. So this is Hebrew parallelism. Till heaven and earth pass away, until all is fulfilled mean the same thing. It's Messiah's way of saying, so long as the heavens and the earth are still here, not the smallest letter or even the smallest piece of a letter has passed from God's commandments, statutes, and judgments, which God commanded to be for how long? Forever. Remember Psalm 89, 34, my covenant I will not break, 
nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. God says not a single word is going to change that he ever uttered, ever uttered. So verse 19, this brings us to the same point as Daniel 12, 3. Whoever, therefore, what does the word whoever mean? Is that a very narrow definition or is that a very broad? It's very broad. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments. What does these refer back to? It refers back to the law, the Torah in verse 18. I actually have commentaries that say, oh, it doesn't refer back to the law. It refers back to Jesus' commandments that he hasn't given yet. (laughs) Really? No. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, this is Daniel 12, 3, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He shall shine like the stars in the heavens. Therefore, which is better, to teach people to break the law or to follow it? Remember, these are the Lord's own words. And verse 20 says, for I say to you, that word for means it's not a new topic. It's a continuation. Who is teaching the people wrong? The scribes and Pharisees. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, what was their righteousness based on? Not God's commandments, but their man-made rules and regulations. You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's go up to Matthew 15 to reinforce what I just said about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That it comes not from keeping God's commandments, but from their man-made rules and regulations. Matthew 15 and Mark 7 are parallel passages. Let's just look at Matthew 15 since we're in Matthew. Matthew 15 verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Yeshua saying. It's important to see it's those who were from Jerusalem. Because of Daniel chapter 9, Israel knew that Messiah was to come early in the first century. So whenever there was a potential, somebody says this may be the Messiah, they would send scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem to go observe, to watch and see, is this Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? In fact, the book of Acts mentions, I think, three other potential Messiahs that they evaluated and said, no, he's not. So they're here to see, is Yeshua the Messiah or not? And what what they see is that the disciples of Messiah, those that he has taught himself, are not following their man-made rules and regulations. In other words, they're not honoring the scribes and Pharisees above the word of God. So verse 2, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Not the law of Moses, not the law of God, but the tradition of the elders. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Talking about netilat yadayim, that special hand-washing ceremony with the two-handled cup, where you pour water over one hand, then water over the other using the two handles of the cup. Where did God command that? Never did. But the Pharisees and the scribes commanded it. So they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God? Because of your tradition. In other words, they put tradition over Bible. 
What do many of the churches in this world do today? They put tradition over Bible. This is what Messiah rebukes the scribes and Pharisees for. Verse 4, he gives them an example. For God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother. That doesn't just mean obey them when you're young. It means support them when they're old. They fed you when you couldn't support yourself. Feed them when they get old. And he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, shouldn't they be saying what God said? But they don't. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. Hypocrite has a much worse meaning today than it did in Bible times. It's simply an actor. Messiah grew up in what city? Nazareth. Nazareth was where the stonemasons lived who were building the Roman amphitheater that was not far from Nazareth. So Messiah grew up as he was working on the amphitheater watching the plays that the Romans put on, the Greek plays. So he was familiar with what an actor is. He calls them actors. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth. They call God, God. They call the Lord, Lord. And honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See that word vain? That's a bad word. It means their worship when it's based on the commandments of men and not the word of God is of no value. How does God feel when we say, I don't care that God said, remember the Sabbath, we're going to do Sunday instead because we like it better. We're not going to do Passover, we're going to do Easter so we can color eggs and give little marshmallow chickies to the kids. Marshmallow, by the way, is made from pigs, etc. All you have to do is read this to know what God thinks about such pagan practices that are done instead of God's commandments. Before I get off topic, let's go back to Malachi chapter 2, verse 6. The law of truth was in his mouth. That's referring specifically to the Torah. And injustice was not found on his lips. The word injustice means unrighteousness. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity, from lawlessness. Verse 7 says, For, what does for mean? Because, because the lips of a priest should keep knowledge. That word knowledge is da'at in Hebrew, D-A apostrophe A-T. Should keep knowledge. And people should seek the law, that's the Torah, from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. How would you like to be a priest charged by God with delivering the message of the Lord of hosts and you're delivering it wrong? You're leading people astray. Do you want to be in their shoes come judgment day? No. But what do we know about this knowledge of verse 7? The lips of a priest should keep knowledge. Let's go over to Hosea chapter 4. God talks about this knowledge in Hosea chapter 4. What does the word Hosea mean? Salvation. Hosea is right before Joel. 
So go back maybe 30 or 40 pages depending upon your Bible. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, is rebuking the priests. I'm sorry, there was a question? Or maybe somebody just unmiked by accident. Hosea chapter 4, 6 is speaking to the priests, just like in Malachi chapter 2. So Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Why do the people go into captivity? Because they fail to follow God's commandments. It says, Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from being priests for me, because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. So knowledge, according to Hosea 4.6, refers to the Torah, the law of your God. Let's look also at Hosea chapter 6, which is Israel returning from captivity, being restored to Israel in the last days, coming back to God. We'll start in verse 1. Hosea 6, starting in verse 1. And we'll go all the way through verse 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. What does that word return mean? Let us repent and come back to God. In Hebrew, it's the equivalent of the English command about face, if you've ever been in the military. When somebody yells about face, what do you do? Yeah, turn around and face the other way. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. How do they know? that God will heal them and bind them up. Because Deuteronomy 30 promised it, that when they repent, God will heal the nation and bring them home. Verse 2 tells us, after two days, the day of the Lord is a thousand years. Psalm 90 verse 4, 2 Peter 3, 8. So it's going to be about 2,000 years of the diaspora, the Roman dispersion amongst the nations. How long has it been? It's been almost two days, hasn't it? After two days, he will revive us. Just think of Ezekiel 37, a vision of valley of dry bones. He'll revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Two days from the first coming of the Lord brings us to the day of the Lord, and the third day is the day of the Lord. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. That's that same knowledge from Hosea 4, which referred to the Torah, the commandment, statutes, and judgment of God that the New Testament calls the law. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning, meaning Messiah's return to us. Hasn't happened yet, right? How do we know it will? God says it's as established as the morning. How many of you go to bed at night terrified that the sun won't come up tomorrow, that there won't be another day? Anybody? I didn't think so. The Lord's coming is as sure as the sun will come up tomorrow. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth, which is a reference back to the book of Joel. And the fact that Messiah's first coming was in the spring, his second coming is in the fall, at the fall festivals. Verse 4 says, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? Ephraim is the northern kingdom of Israel. They've been gone since what? About, about 2,700 years. From 722 BCE, they've been gone. Has God forgotten them? No, God's going to bring them back. Oh, Judah, what shall I do to you? That's the southern kingdom. 
For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. In other words, their faithless, their faithfulness lasts just a little while, and then they fall away again. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In other words, God would prefer you not sin than that you sin and have to bring a sacrifice. What God really wants is not more dead lambs and dead cows. He wants our hearts to follow him out of what? Out of love. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. That's what God wants. The sacrifices are necessary to shed blood to cover over sin. Messiah's blood had to be shed to take away sin. But God would rather that we just not sin in the first place. So the knowledge of God, that we keep God's commandments, statutes, and judgments out of love, out of faith, because we generally want to give him our full hearts and our full lives. That's what God really wants. Go to Micah chapter 3. Micah is between Hosea and Malachi. Right after the book of Jonah. Micah chapter 3, verse 11. What caused the priests to stop teaching properly? Oh, they like that money, do they? Verse 11, her heads judge for a bribe and her priests teach for pay. They stopped being interested in the content of God's word and more interested in what they could make from it. And if you want people to put money in your pocket, do you tell them what they don't want to hear or do you tell them what they want to hear? You tell them what they want to hear. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Yeah, when they turn their hearts away from God, then yes, harm can come. And harm did come. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. But that's in the New Testament. Yes, it is. 1 Peter chapter 2. Kind of giggle whenever somebody tells me if I just read the New Testament, I'd see I'm all wrong. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is written to the believers, not to the tribe of Levi, but to all you who have taken the name of the Lord. Saved by faith. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. 
when Peter says that we as believers are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, what does that mean we have the obligation to share with people? The word of God, the Torah. Now, 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 now. Nothing in the New Testament says we're supposed to teach God's commandments to people. Really? Let's go to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Let's see exactly what Messiah told us to do. Because in Matthew 28, you see the word saying, which means what? What follows is a quote. So these words came out of Messiah's own mouth. Matthew 28, 18. And Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, them refers to the disciples. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. What's a disciple? Hebrew is Talmudim. It's a student. Talmudim comes from the word to learn. Of all the nations, the word nations means the Gentiles. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Notice name is singular. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Teaching them what? All things that I have commanded you. Hmm. What did Messiah say in Matthew 5? What portion of God's law has passed away? Not a letter, not a piece of a letter. So this means go teach the Gentiles to obey the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation is the last book in our Bible. All the other apostles are dead and gone when John writes the book of Revelation. It is the last word revealed to us in the scriptures. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6. And has made us. What does us refer to? The believers. And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. The priests have the responsibility of what? Teaching forth the word of God. Tim be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If we are going to be kings and priests with him and his dominion is forever and ever, how long is our mission? Forever and ever. Look also in Revelation chapter 5. Verse 10. We'll start in verse 9 so we don't start in the middle of the song because this is a song. It's a song that's referred to all the way back in Isaiah chapter 26, which is the first teaching of the rapture and the resurrection together. And they sang a new song saying, what's that word saying? What follows is a quote. These are what we're going to sing. You are worthy to take the scroll. Who's the you? That's Messiah, Yeshua. And to open its seals, for you were slain. When was Messiah slain? Oh yeah, 2,000 years ago. That cross, remember, in Israel? And have redeemed us to God, how? By your blood. What did Messiah say? My blood is the blood of the new covenant. 
out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Well, that includes all the Gentiles too. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Lastly, go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. People say, oh, Wayne, you're just a Judaizer. <laughs> Have you seen the word Judaizer in the Bible anywhere? It's not there. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. That's the resurrection to life. It began when Messiah was resurrected and there was the multitude resurrected with him. It continues in Revelation chapter 4 with the main harvest, the rapture and resurrection. And then is completed in Revelation 20 with the gleanings, those that got saved during the tribulation period but died as martyrs. That's the first resurrection. It says, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Messiah and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So for a thousand years, we are going to be preaching the word of God throughout the millennial kingdom. But why? Everyone who goes alive in the millennial kingdom is a believer. But they have children. Those children must learn. God has no grandchildren. They must decide for themselves whether to be saved by faith in the completed work of our Messiah Yeshua or not. So back to Malachi chapter 2. We're up to verse 8. Notice verse 7 said, For the lips of a priest... Should. What does that word should mean? <laughs> it's what needs to happen. Verse 8 begins with but. What does but mean? It means it didn't happen. But you have departed from the way. Not from a way. From the way. There is only one way that God has commanded. He hasn't given us all the religions of the world, like spokes of a wheel that all lead to him. Have you heard that teaching? That's wrong. Dual covenant theology, too. At least three times this week, I watch prophecy teachers teach about that which is to come. And all of them said, but those Jews from the Old Testament that are saved... They can't go in the rapture and resurrection. They don't get resurrected until the end. Because they're not saved by Messiah. How many ways are there? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Then in Matthew 23, Messiah himself says, I'm the one who sent the prophets. And in Matthew chapter 17, who appears with Messiah at his return? Moses and Elijah. Hey, they were Old Testament. And what does Isaiah say in Isaiah 26? He says, he's going in the rapture and the resurrection, doesn't he? Let's turn back and look. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not wrong. Isaiah 26, verse 19. This is what Isaiah has to say about the rapture and the resurrection. 
He says, your dead shall live. The your refers to Israel. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. The my is Isaiah. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. Who dwells in dust? Dead people. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. That's the resurrection. But verse 20 says, come my people, not come my formerly dead people. My people includes the dead in Messiah and those who are alive and remain. That's why this includes the rapture as well as the resurrection, whether people understood it back then or not. Come my people, enter your chambers. That word chamber means the wedding chamber. Who goes into the wedding chamber? Only two, the bridegroom and the bride. So this is the bride coming into the bridal chamber. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is passed. That word indignation is za'am in Hebrew. Z-A apostrophe A-M. It is the tribulation period. So when the indignation is going on, where are God's people? They're in the wedding chambers. Once the indignation is passed, we come to verse 21. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place, out of the wedding chamber. To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Where else do we see the Lord coming out of the wedding chamber when it's time for the second coming? Joel chapter 2. Let's go to Joel chapter 2. Joel's right before Amos. Joel chapter 2 verse 15 is the end of the tribulation period. It's time for the battle of Armageddon. Joel chapter 2 verse 15 it says blow the trumpet in Zion Zion prophetic Jerusalem consecrate a fast what's the only fast day ordered by God Yom Kippur so it's Yom Kippur the day Messiah returns for Armageddon call a sacred assembly it's an atzeret it's a concluding assembly gather the people sanctify the congregation the kahal Assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. That's Revelation 19.11. Who returns with Messiah? The bride. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Okay, let's go back to Malachi. We're in verse 8. But you have departed from the way. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 18 verse 19 to see what we mean by the way. Genesis 18:19. We'll start in verse 17 to give us the lead in. It's about Sodom and Gomorrah and how God is about to judge them for their sin. Wait a minute, were the people of Sodom and Gomorrah Jews? No, but they're going to be judged for their sin. And what is sin according to 1 John 3, 4? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's commandments. So this, as well as so many other scriptures teach us that the commandments of God apply to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. 
But in verse 17 says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. How will all the nations of the earth be blessed in him? Because Messiah will descend from Abraham. Verse 19, For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord. This is the first time we see that phrase, the way of the Lord. So what is it? It says, to do righteousness and justice. The opposite of righteousness is lawlessness. So the way of the Lord is to do righteousness and justice. Comment that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he spoke in the hymn. Okay, go to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18, verse 20. Exodus chapter 18, verse 20. We'll start in verse 17 to give you the background so that you'll know Jethro is the one who's talking. Verse 17 says, So Moses' father-in-law, that's Jethro, said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Who's he talking to? Moses, saying what you're doing is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. Meaning one man trying to lead and judge an entire nation is just too much says, for this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. Now listen to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them. Them refers back to the people. The statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk. And the work they must do. So teach them the statutes and the laws is showing them the way in which they must walk. So to walk in the way is to follow God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. Let's go to Exodus 32 verse 8. If Messiah says in John 14, 6, I am the way, can he teach people to break God's commandments? No. If he is the way, that means he is the embodiment of and keeps perfectly the commandments. So Exodus chapter 32, verse 8. And again, for context, we'll start in verse 7. Moses is up on a mountain. The people have made a golden calf. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's bad. Mm -hmm. Lord said to Moses, go get down. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. The way which I commanded them. God's commandments, statutes, and judgments lay out the way. Just like a map lays out the way when you're traveling to a destination. It shows you the way to go. 
so is God in his commandments. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 9. We're not going to look at every instance that tells us what the way is, just enough that you'll go, hey, we got it. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 16. Moses has in his hands the tablets of the commandments. Actually, they're not called the Ten Commandments in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew says the Ten Words or the Ten Sayings. Verse 16 says, And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God, had made for yourselves a molded calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. So God had commanded a way. One of those commandments was, Don't make any idols. And after God said, don't make any idols, what'd they do? They made an idol. That's why God says, you turn away quickly. You didn't even wait till the word stopped bouncing off the mountains. Deuteronomy 11, verses 24 to 28. And again, we'll have a lead in from verse 22, so we know the context in which the words come in verse 24. And we'll go all the way through 28. Verse 22 says, for if, that little word if, you carefully keep. That's an infinitive of emphasis, meaning if you really keep. All these commandments I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and all fast to him. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. You know what an if-then construct means, right? Yeah, so verse 24 says, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. From the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, that's the Mediterranean, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread. Just as he has said to you, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way, which I commanded you today, to go after other gods which you've not known. Yes, I heard somebody go to meeting. I have two questions. Um, isn't it amazing how they, the Palestinians are yelling the, from the river to the sea? I don't know if they even know that's right out of the Torah. They, they want to wipe out Israel from the river to the sea. Right. And um, my other question, though, was when did they stop being the way? When did the new believers in the first century be, stop the, calling themselves the way? In Acts chapter 9, the believers were first called the way, and it never says they stopped calling themselves the way. In the New Testament, the word Christian only appears three times. And every time it's by an outsider, and it's being used in a derogatory manner. 
the believers in the New Testament, by and large, they call themselves saints. And in the 4th century, the church stopped using that term and went to the word Christian. Because saints, according to the Bible, keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. And they were now being taught, don't keep the commandments of God, keep the commandments of the church instead. All right, thank you. Yeah. Question on a related topic. Go ahead, Paul. As as Messianic believers in Yeshua, yep. anytime you're introducing yourself to non-churchy people or churchy people, yep. what do you think is the best uh, way to say, and is is it a okay to say I'm a follower of the way of Jesus or yeah you can say that do you typically, how do you typically introduce yourself when people ask when me when people ask me are you a Christian I say I am messianic and I say that because invariably before they can stop themselves they say what does that mean and then I get to tell them because they asked ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. very good thank you Wayne you're welcome John 14, verse 6. We said it. Let's go look at it. Put your eyes on it. Be like the Bereans. Whatever I teach you, let's go look at it. To say, is that what the Bible says or isn't it? John 14, 6. Messiah says, I am the way. The truth. What is truth? According to the Bible, the Torah is truth. The Word of God is truth. The Holy Spirit is truth. Messiah is truth. If all four are truth, can they disagree with each other? The answer is no, they can't. Otherwise, one has to be false. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What does he mean by that? Turn back to John chapter 3. Everybody knows John 3.16. Half the world knows it because of football games. And there's somebody who's always holding up a sign, John 3.16. But we need to go through verse 18. Verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18 is key here. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. People read that and go, oh, all we have to do is say the name Jesus and we're saved. No, no, you're taking that incorrectly, out of context. Look at John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. Whenever I read something like that in the scripture, it gets my attention. I'm now focused on it. And this is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. This is eternal life that they may know you. And I like that because 1 John chapter 2 gives us a test we can do. A self-evaluation. 
Go to 1 John chapter 2. Before you come to judgment day, you can do a self-evaluation. A pretest, if you will. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3, says, Let me give you a chance to find it. Now by this we know that we know him. Here shall you can have confidence that you have met the threshold of John 17, 3. If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. I've heard many preachers on YouTube refer to 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 to 6 and say, we don't know what this means, but it contradicts the doctrine of once saved, always saved, so just ignore it. They say it conflicts with our doctrine. Therefore, ignore the Bible. I say if it conflicts with the doctrine, ignore the doctrine. Don't let doctrine take precedence over the scriptures, over the word of God. Go to Acts chapter 24. But Wayne, Paul said, well, let's go look and see what Paul said. If you're ever in a room full of pastors and you want to have a little fun, just say, how many of you believe that our faith makes void the law? And watch all the hands shoot up. Say, now turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 31. So let's do that. Keep a finger in Acts 24 and turn over to Romans 3.31. Who wrote Romans 3.31? Paul did says, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And watch the chins drop. But back to Acts chapter 24, verse 14. The Apostle Paul is testifying before Felix. Not the cat, that was a cartoon. But Felix, who was in charge. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, there's that phrase again, the way, which they call a sect, which means just another sect of Judaism. It wasn't a new religion. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Paul believed what portion of the law and the prophets? All of it. Now watch out. Some translations say the way which they call a cult. That's not a proper translation. That is putting doctrine into the scripture and doing it badly. Whenever somebody says, Wayne, how can you be so sure that the law still applies and has not been abolished? My response is, 
look at the prophecies in the scripture. Can God's prophets be wrong? Then let's look at Isaiah 2. God's prophets cannot be wrong. They must be right 100% of the time. Is Isaiah the prophet everybody turns to to look at the prophecies of the birth of Messiah? Yeah. And the virgin shall conceive and bear a, a son. That's Isaiah chapter 7. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. That's Isaiah chapter 9. Now look at Isaiah chapter 2. Starting in verse 2. This is about the millennial kingdom. The kingdom with Messiah ruling on earth. And being in charge of everybody. King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 1 says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. If you've not fixed your Bible yet, fix it. Latter days in Hebrew is acharit hayamin. And it means the end of days. In a Jewish published Bible, that's capitalized. It's what you and I call the millennial kingdom. So this is a prophecy about the millennial kingdom with Messiah on the throne. That the mountain of the Lord's house, that's the messianic kingdom, a mountain in prophecy is a kingdom, shall be established on the top of the mountain, shall be exalted above the hills, that's over every other nation of the world, large or small, and all nations shall flow to it. The word nations refers to the Gentiles. All the Gentiles left in the millennial kingdom are going to come up to Jerusalem. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. That's the temple where Messiah sits. He will teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah. If the Torah was abolished when Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, why is he teaching it in the kingdom to all the earth? And the word Lord from Jerusalem. Go to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4 teaches in almost the same words, the same concept. Micah chapter 4. In Micah 4 it starts in verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the Acheritayamim, the end of days, the Messianic kingdom. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the Torah, the law shall go forth. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You mean to tell me the Torah was abolished and Messiah didn't notice? didn't happen but people say maybe it's a new law maybe it's it's not the old law well let's go to Ezekiel 44 Ezekiel 44 takes place in the kingdom Messiah takes his seat on the throne in chapter 43 in Ezekiel chapter 44 it doesn't just tell us the law is being taught it's more specific Ezekiel 44 verse 23 and they shall teach, oops, I got a question out there and go to Meadowland. Let me look what it is. Susie Gu says, pre-evaluation, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yep, so do a self-evaluation and correct if you're off course. 
So Ezekiel 44, verse 23, and they, referring to the priests serving Messiah in the temple, in the kingdom, shall teach my people. Does it say my Jewish people? No, it says my people. The difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. Have you heard that Jesus made all animals clean? No, he did not. So in the kingdom, they're teaching the people which are clean animals, which are not. Verse 24, in controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws, that's my Torah, and my statutes, that's my chukim, in all my appointed meetings, that's Leviticus 23, that's Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, etc. And they shall hallow my Sabbaths. So are they teaching Christmas, Easter, and Sundays? No. no, they are not. And Messiah is on the throne leading them. A lot of people try and get around this by using dispensationalism, saying that it used to apply, it doesn't apply now, but it'll apply again in the future, which makes what sense? None. None. Zip zero. You heard a pastor one time say? Salvation was by works before Messiah. Salvation was by works before Messiah. But go ahead. And then after Messiah, it was salvation by faith. Then when Messiah came, it was salvation by faith. And the kingdom it goes back to salvation by works because God just can't make up his mind. Anybody believe that? No. No. Especially when Messiah says, no man comes to the Father except through me. Where in Galatians chapter 3 does it say salvation was never by the law? Galatians 3 talks about Abraham was saved by faith, and when the law came 430 years later, did it make a new way to be saved? No, it did not. You're absolutely right. Let's continue this thought in Matthew chapter 23. I know this is groundbreaking. Matthew 23 comes right before Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is about the day of the Lord. So let's look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! If you're not a horse, woe is a bad thing. What does he call the scribes and Pharisees again? Hypocrites, actors, pretenders. If you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, that's a Gentile who converts to Judaism. And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Why does he call them sons of hell? He told us in Matthew 15, it's because they set aside the commandments of God and replaced them with doctrines of men. Hmm. To Acts chapter 17. Let's get back and talk about Paul again. But Paul said the law is dead. No, he didn't. People misunderstand. Acts chapter 17.
If you look at verses 1 through 3, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Explaining and demonstrating them from what? From the scriptures. What you and I would call the Old Testament, Paul calls the scriptures. And, not a, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Now come down to verse 10, which is why we're here. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Who lived in Berea? The Bereans. When they arrived there, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures. What are the scriptures? It's what you and I call the Old Testament. That's all that they had. Daily to find out whether these things were so. If Paul is teaching them the Old Testament is old, it's useless, it's not to be read, it's not to be studied. What's he teaching from? He's teaching from those scriptures. And he is blessing the Bereans for taking everything that he teaches and going back to the Old Testament, as we would call it, to see if it's so or not. If Paul is teaching contrary to what the Old Testament teaches, what would they find? That it doesn't match. That it's not true. So they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Which means Paul... In Acts 24, 14, when he says, I believe everything in the law and the prophets meant exactly what he said. Let's go to the end of the book of Acts. In the book of Acts. Chapter 27. In 28. 28. Verse 17. Acts 28, 17. Yep, 28, 17. Oops, I got four going to meeting questions out there now. Let's go see. What is the verse that prophets are 100% accurate, Sam? That's in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Whoop, Rachel responded already. Okay. Thanks, Rachel. She was quicker than I was to see it. Acts 28, 17. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. If Paul is teaching people to ignore the Torah, to set it aside, it's old, it's useless, it's of no value, then what would he be doing here in verse 17? He would be lying through his teeth. When he says, I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, if he's teaching people to abandon the commandments of God, he would be lying to them. But didn't? But didn't? Customs of our fathers, did that not kind of describe the man-made rules at some at other points in Scripture? 
It depends, yes, it can. It can include. So Paul is not, he's, Paul's using the two anal cup to wash his hands. He's not teaching them they have to do that. But he's being careful not to offend people. That's what he means by to the Gentiles I became as a Gentile, to the Jews I became as a Jew. He's going to make sure not to offend them. A, a modern day example um, when I'm in Jerusalem, at the end of Shabbat, everybody goes out to Ben Yehuda Street, has ice cream, and, and talk about the Bible. And I can sit there with the rabbis, and I can talk to them about the scriptures, about why I think Yeshua is the Messiah. That doesn't offend anybody. But if I were to sit down there with a ham sandwich, I'd be sitting alone. Yeah. Let's turn back earlier in the book of Acts. Let's see. To chapter 21. Wasn't planning to do this, but seems like a good thing to do at the moment. Paul is in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 21. Let's start in verse 17. And when you come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. That's talking about Paul and those traveling with him. They were glad to have him back in Jerusalem to talk to him to see what's been going on in the missionary journeys. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. That's Yaakov, Messiah's half-brother. He was the leader of the apostles in Jerusalem. And all the elders were present. That's talking about all the apostles. When he greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. What portion of the Jews who believed are zealous for the law? All of them. Verse 21, But, uh uh-oh, but they've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews from among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet for they will hear that you've come. In other words, they've heard these rumors about you, Paul. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who've taken a vow. That's a Nazarite vow. Paul's also under a Nazarite vow at the moment. The Nazarite vows end in Jerusalem at the Feast of Weeks or Sukkot or call it Pentecost if you prefer. And they end with cutting off the hair that's grown during the vow and burning it on a sacrifice on the altar. So it says, um, verse 23, Therefore do we tell you, we have four men who have taken a vow, Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses means to buy their animals for their sacrifice when you buy the animal for yours. So that they may shave their heads. That's the end of the vow. That all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing. Meaning they're lies. They're not true. But that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. These false rumors are still what's being taught in the church today that Paul told us to to stop following the commandments. Right here we're told it's not true, that they're false. 
Is this the first time in the book of Acts we're told that that is a false teaching? The answer is no. Go back earlier in the book of Acts to chapter 6. Chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, open Perrin, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, and Perrin, disputing with Stephen. And they're not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they, look at these words, secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. That's the Sanhedrin. Not only was it a council, it was the court. They also set up what kind of witnesses? False witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law, the Torah. So we're told that the allegations that the disciples were teaching people not to follow God's commandments, we're told specifically they had to secretly induce people to bring false witnesses. If the apostles were teaching that the commandments were no longer applicable since Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, they would bring what kind of witnesses? True witnesses. They wouldn't have to hire people to lie. Okay, I'm off topic. Let's go back to Malachi chapter 2. We're up to verse 9. Malachi chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people. That's talking about the priests. The priests should be in a position of honor, listening to them teach the Torah as honored teachers. But God has made them contemptible and base. Because you have not kept my ways. The word kept there is from the verb shamar, which means to guard, to protect, to treat as valuable but have shown partiality in the law. Partiality in the law. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, we talked earlier about those blind and lame sacrifices. The priests don't let everybody get away with that, just the rich and the powerful. They can do what they want because they put money in the priest's pocket. They may bring in valid sacrifices and the priest will accept them. Let's go to the book of James chapter 2. James chapter 2. I'm sure you all realize the book of James almost didn't make it into the canon of the New Testament at all. Because the church did not like what it teaches. His name's Jacob. They changed it to James. Well, that's not all they changed. Go to chapter 2 and start in verse 1. My brethren... Do not hold the faith of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, the Lord of glory, with partiality. 
It's specifically thinking back to the days of the priests who did, who were partial. For if there should come into your assembly, that word is not assembly, that word is synagogue. This is one of the things they didn't like. It says the New Testament believers were still in synagogues. A man with gold rings, in fine apparel, in other words, a rich person. And there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there or sit at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Why would they want to give preference to the wealthy people? Yeah. Hey, pass that offering plate. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? All you have to do is think of the story of who? Lazarus and the rich man. Which one did God prefer? Lazarus. And heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. What do you say about rich people? Easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's not literally a needle. The eye of the needle was a gate in a walled city. One that was so low and small you had to get down and crawl to go through. It's how you got in and out of the city at night when the main gates are closed. If you're coming in an invading army, you can't get the camel to go down and crawl through that eye. It's too low. Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you're called? If you really fulfilled the royal law, that's the Torah. According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do we know that's talking about the Torah? Because you shall love your neighbor as yourself is in the Torah. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. Literally, you work sin. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point. He's guilty of all. So what portion of the law are we supposed to be keeping as believers? All of it. Go back to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10. Somebody let me know if it becomes 1 or 2 o'clock in case I don't notice. Deuteronomy 10. Verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows what? No partiality, nor takes a bribe. So come judgment day, can we haul all our earthly wealth before him and say, we'll trade this for eternal life? The answer is no, uh-uh. What's that? We won't even get to take it. Who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe, which means he judges honestly and righteously, and he expects us to do the same. Go to Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Acts 
Acts chapter 10 is the chapter where people say it says we can eat pigs, but it most certainly does not. Start in verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Here he's talking about partiality between Jew and Gentile. He says, For in every nation, whoever fears him, what does it mean to fear him? It means to obey his commandments. And works righteousness, that's the opposite of lawlessness, is accepted by him. When Peter finished seeing the vision, he didn't understand what it meant. It wasn't until the three Gentiles came knocking at his door. How many times did the voice from heaven say, Arise, Peter, kill and eat? What I've cleansed, don't call common? Three times. How many Gentiles knocked at the door? Three. Does Peter say, Oh, now I understand. God has shown me not to call any pig common or unclean. No, he said, God has shown me not to call any man common or unclean. What does Job 14.4 say? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? No one. The pigs are unclean because God made them that way. They've always been unclean. They'll always be unclean. And that's the point. Hold out two hands. Who said the pig is unclean? God. Who said the Gentile is unclean? The scribes and Pharisees. Who gets to decide what's clean or unclean? God does. That's what Acts chapter 10 is about. Go to Romans chapter 2 verse 11. Romans chapter 2 verse 11. For, uh-oh, for means because, can't start there. So back up to verse 5. In fact, all the way to 4. Or you dis- do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who are rendered to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking, meaning seeking after self, not after God, and do not obey the truth, the Torah's truth, that's Psalm 119, verse 142, but obey unrighteousness, that's lawlessness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, which means Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace in everyone who works what is good in the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So if the Jews don't follow God's commandments, that's sin. How about if the Gentiles don't follow God's commandments? That's sin. God shows no partiality. There is one way of salvation for all people. Go to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9.
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Colossians chapter 3, what do you think it's going to say? No partiality. I got a feeling, but let's look. Colossians 3, verse 25. Colossians 3, 25. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. How about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17? Does it surprise us that we go from book to book in the Bible and find the same things being taught? Shouldn't surprise us. God is not the author of confusion. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, comes right after, Be holy, for I am holy. It says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. With the precious blood of Messiah as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So what's Peter trying to tell us? Be holy as God is holy. Because we're going to be judged one day. And how does Psalm 119 begin? Let's go back and look at Psalm 119, verse 1. Psalm 119 is focused on Judgment Day. Who's going to like Judgment Day and who's not going to like it? Psalm 119, you have to change the first word. The first word is blessed, but it should be happy. Ashray. Happy are the undefiled in the way. Remember we talked about the way? Who walk in the law of the Lord. Come judgment day, what you want to hear from the Lord is, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Not depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. <coughs> Verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. It's actually work no iniquity. They walk in his ways. Notice the same words you see in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. He will teach us to walk in his ways. Okay. Let's go back to Malachi. Chapter 2. We're up to verse 10. Malachi 2.10 says, Have we not all one Father? What Father are they talking about? Talking about the Lord, our God, not our earthly fathers. Has not one God created us? So Father and God here are parallel terms. I mean the same thing. Why do we deal treacherously with one another? 
by profaning the covenant of the fathers. Uh, Malachi here has a particular problem with the priests. Before he's been talking in general terms, now we're going to get down to some specific conduct. These priests have come out of the Babylonian captivity. In the Babylonian captivity, they have married Jewish wives. And then they have taken Babylonian wives in addition. Did God tell the priests that they could marry pagans? Absolutely not. So these priests have broken their marriage vows. They betrayed the covenant that God had that said the priests will marry within the Jewish people. And they went and married heathen women. Go back to Ezra and let's read specifically. Ezra, right before Nehemiah. Specifically, Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Remember, Malachi was with Ezra and Nehemiah and the groups that came out of Babylon. Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. And while Ezra was... Oops, you're not there yet. Let me give you a chance. Drink another sip of my dirty water. Ezra 10.1, now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have transgressed against our God, and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and, and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Same chapter, Ezra chapter 10, go down to verse 18. Yes, ma'am. When it says to put away the foreign wives. Is that for us to assume that they did not take on our faith or their, the faith of their husbands? Yes. Yes, we assume they have not converted to Judaism. They have maintained their pagan identities and relationships. Unlike Ruth in the book of Ruth who converts and worships the true and living God. So what they brought to the priesthoods is a worship of the foreign gods combined with the worship of the true and living God. And how does God feel about syncretism? Yeah, no, no, no. So in chapter 10 of Ezra, verses 18 to 25, it says, And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, Maaseah, Eliezer, Jerib, and Gedaliah. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. Also the sons of Emer, Hanani, and Zebediah, of the sons of Harim, Maaseah, 
Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah. Of the sons of Pashur, Elional, that's an I, Elionai, Maaseah, Ishmael, Nathaniel, Josabad, and Elisah. Also of the Levites, Josabad, Shimei, Kaliah, the same as Kalita, Pedathiah, Judah, and Eliezer. Also the singers, Eliashib, and of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri. And others of Israel, the sons of Parosh, Ramiah, Josiah, Malchiah, Mijamin, Eliezer, Malchiah, and Benaiah. And it just keeps going. Why would God lay out these people did this? Is it so that we can learn from it and not to do the same? Yeah. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and see what they mean about they've broken the commandments of God. What happened to, wasn't their dad, Feelings about that? When the children grew up, didn't they hate their father? I mean, what, what did that turn into a tribe-wise? They went to Amalekites, but what happened? Doesn't tell us. I would have to just guess. Deuteronomy 7. But God had commanded them not to do it, and God has told them to put away those foreign wives and foreign children. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall, not con- you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord be aroused against you, and destroy you suddenly. So that's what's happened. These priests have married the pagan wives, and they brought their pagan gods back with them to Israel, and the priests are compromised. They can't teach the word of the true and living God because they're not living it. And they're told they must send them back. Back to Malachi chapter 2. Verse 11. So the priests in particular were told they cannot marry foreign wives. But they did it anyway. And now they've come back to teach the law to the people. And they can't because they're compromised. So in verse 11 it says, Judah has dealt treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution. What's that? Talking about marriage. Which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. So that offends the holiness of God when they do that. Verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware. So the one who marries the foreign wives and continues to keep them and keep the foreign gods with them are not qualified to be a priest 
in God's temple. It says, the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So his children are not qualified to be priests after him, and he's not qualified to bring an offering in the temple of God. So verse 13 says, and this is the second thing you do. The first thing was allowing the invalid sacrifices. The second thing is you have priests with pagan wives and children bringing offerings into the house of God. That's the second thing. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears. These are the tears of the Jewish wives that have been set aside in favor of these pagan wives. Because the pagan wives were younger, prettier, whatever the situation would be. So the tears of the wives that are being mistreated cover God's altar. It says, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. If you remember, in the book of Malachi, there are eight times that Israel questions God. And verse 14 is the fourth of them. If you're making notes on what the eight are, here's number four. Yet you say, for what reason? Meaning, for what reason do you reject our offerings just because we're not keeping your commandments and walking in agreement with pagan idols? What's wrong with our sacrifices? They're blind, they're lame, but hey, they're lambs. It says, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. That's the Jewish wife who's been wronged when you broke your covenant of marriage to engage in these activities with the foreign wives. So it goes on to say, between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That's something that I wish people would keep in mind. When you enter into a marriage, you take a covenant on the name of God. And when you break your marriage vows, you're breaking that covenant on the name of God. And that's a bad thing. Go back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So when we make an oath on the name of God and we break it, that's how we take the name of the Lord our God in vain. We make it of no value. We took an oath on it and treat it as if it doesn't matter. And that's what these priests have done when they have set aside the wives of their youth so that they can have these pagan foreign wives. Back to Malachi 2, verse 15. But did he not make them one? Make who one? The husband and the wife. They two shall become what? One flesh. flesh. Uh huh. Did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? 
He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Do you remember when we did the study of the word forsake, like to forsake the Lord God? That word is here in verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave, that word is forsake, it means to voluntarily turn away from his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So when a man goes and takes a wife, he leaves the home of his mother and father, right? To establish a home for his wife and his family. That's what the word forsake is. To voluntarily turn aside from. To start something new. Go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him. What's that mean? They want to catch him in a trap. And saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Do you know why they're asking this? There are two schools of the rabbis, the school of Hallel and the school of Shammai. One teaches, the school of Shammai teaches, that you can only divorce your wife for sexual immorality. And the school of Hillel says, no, you can divorce her for any reason. She burns your breakfast, put her out. Just get rid of her. So they want to know, which school of thought are you following? Messiah almost always agreed with the school of Hillel, but this is the case where he sides with Shammai. Yes, ma'am. The answer is the wives couldn't divorce their husbands in ancient Israel. No matter what. No matter what. Because if she leaves her husband, she can't go down and get a job at Walmart. She can't own land. She generally becomes either a prostitute or starves to death. But if they were going against the law, couldn't the husband divorce the wife? There's nothing in scripture about the wife divorcing the husband. Now, I wasn't there. I can't say it didn't happen, but I've never read anything about it historically, and there's nothing in the scripture. Because, as a general rule, the wives wanted to continue to eat. Now, I, I noticed in the last book we read that it was all the men that were priests, supposedly. Yes, the men are priests. The women were not priests. Right, well, yeah. Yeah. But they, it still, it sounds like the men got... Still sounds like the men got the worst of it. Well, they deserved it. Okay. Let's go to Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6, and let's continue. Verse 4. He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate 
Meaning, no, you can't divorce your wife just for any old reason, just because you don't like her breakfast or she didn't comb her hair this morning or you don't like the way she did this or that. Marriage is a sacred vow in the name of God, and we need to treat it that way. Okay, back to Malachi. We have just a couple more minutes. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, there should be a thee in there. The Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So to put aside the Jewish wife of your youth so that you can participate in the immoral and godless activities of the foreign pagan wife is simply wrong. It says, for it covers one's garment with violence. Go back to the book of Ruth, chapter 3. Ruth, chapter 3. Ruth is after Judges. The garment they're talking about is this one, the tallit. At the end of a Jewish wedding, the bridegroom will put his tallit around the bride's shoulders, brings her under his wings. That's what it means by under the wings. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 6 through 9, It says in verse 6, So she, who's she? That's Ruth. Went down to the threshing floor. That's the threshing floor of Boaz. Did according to all that her mother-in-law, that's Naomi, instructed her. After Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. Yeah, that'd be startling, wouldn't it? He said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. To take me under your wing is to take me as your bride, to put that tallit across my shoulders, to bring me under the tallit. In Ezekiel 16, and then we're going to run out of time. Ezekiel 16, verse 8. Ezekiel 16, verse 8. This is the word of the Lord speaking. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love, so I spread my wing over you. Wing is the word kanaf, it's the corner of the tallit, the prayer shawl where the zit seat are tied. Again, it's talking about spreading the tallit over the bride's shoulders to bring her into the tallit. 
So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. So it's talking about Israel becoming the bride of God. And with that, we've run out of time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, with the fifth question of the eight in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17.